Fired Up show starts right now. And hello, good day. Thank you for downloading and listening to the Fired Up podcast right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve. I host the show each week, and I really appreciate your tuning in. We've got a lot to talk about in this episode. Uh, It's been a very eventful week, and we're going to jump right into it. First thing, as always, uh, let's review where we stand with the COVID-19 virus. Uh, As of this week, there are 87.8 million cases that have been reported and 1.017 million uh, people have uh, passed away from the disease and 589 uh, people have been vaccinated with the disease, including those that have just one dose and those that are fully vaccinated. So we continue to make progress on that front. And you know, just as a reminder, as always, let's make sure that we are wearing our masks and you know, practicing all of the things we've learned over the past two years because the new subvariants of the Omicron virus are making their way you know, around the United States. And uh, although their symptoms are, in most cases, less severe, than the full-blown Omicron or any of the previous variants, it is still a highly contagious disease and we need to do everything we can to protect ourselves. So let's make sure we're following all of the guidance we have been getting from medical uh, experts and scientists. All right, so let's dive in to what we've got going on. Uh, As I said, it's been a very eventful week. Uh, We start off with Uh, Probably the most positive and high point of the week, and that would be the swearing in of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson as the first African-American female associate justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, That happened on the 30th of June, uh, which uh, coincided with the end of the current term for the Supreme Court and the retirement of Associate Justice Stephen Breyer. Uh, who uh, Justice Brown Jackson has replaced on the bench. So, you know, it, it is, as, as imagined, a very historic event. Uh, this is the first African-American female to be seated on the bench. She also joins uh, additional women on the Supreme Court, including Judge Elena Kagan, just Justice Sotomayor, uh, and Justice uh, Jarrett. Uh, so the, the women have a large chunk of the Supreme Court seats uh, in their hands. So, you know, it will be interesting to see uh, is the appointment and the, the rising of Justice Jackson to the bench going to fundamentally change the Supreme Court? Uh, in you know, the real answer to that is no, it will still be a conservative majority court. It will still be 6-3 in that regard. Uh, however, uh, one of the things that I think will occur you know, over the time of her serving on the bench is you know, a, a in inflection or an addition of you know, some different perspectives into the deliberations that the justices make on various cases. Uh, Justice Jackson brings a wide range of experience to the bench. Uh, she is, is highly qualified 
and she also is uh, the first justice to ascend to the bench who uh, was a former prosecutor. So she has some interesting perspectives on applications of the law and how the law is interpreted and applied uh, in the cases. So we will see as we go along, you know, what the the influence of the newest justice on the bench uh, will make. Uh, there's an article that came out of USA Today on uh, Friday, July 1st, and uh, it gave a little bit of background uh, for Justice Jackson. Uh, as I said, she was a former public defender. Uh, she's a native of Miami, and uh, she uh, was elevated to the bench by President Joe Biden. Uh, she came from the D.C. Uh, Circuit Court, uh, where she had been appointed by uh, President Obama. And, you know, she replaces uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, who she clerked for uh, in the Supreme Court in uh, the 1999-2000 term uh, because both justices were nominated by Democratic presidents, as the article says, uh, Justice Jackson's appointment is not likely to upset the conservative 6-3 advantage on the court. However, you know, as I, I said a moment ago, uh, it will be interesting to see uh, once the decisions and once the deliberations begin on cases when the Supreme Court uh, comes back into session in October, uh, how her influence uh, may shape some of the decisions that come out of the court going into the future. President Joe Biden described Jackson swearing in as a, quote, profound step forward for our nation, for all the young black girls who now see them themselves reflected on our highest court, and for all of us as Americans, close quote. Justice Breyer said of uh, Justice Jackson's appointment, that uh, he was, quote, glad for America. He said, uh, Jackson, he said, will, quote, interpret the law wisely and fairly, helping that law to work better for the American people whom it serves. Congratulations, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, end quote. Uh, of course, her appointment and her swearing in uh, was met with celebration from black women of all ages across the country. Uh, some stopped working in offices and at home to watch on television. Others sported t-shirts bearing Jackson's name and image. Some stood in front of the Supreme Court where she will soon join other justices in considering cases on the nation's highest court. She was quoted as saying after her swearing in uh, that, quote, she was truly grateful to be part of the promise of our great nation, close quote, and she thanked her new colleagues. Justice Breyer has been a personal friend and mentor of mine for the past two decades, in addition to being part of today's official act, Jackson said. In the wake of his exemplary service, with the support of my family and friends, and ever mindful of the duty to promote the rule of law, I am well positioned to serve the American people, end quote. So, you know, as uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, Justice Jackson came to the Supreme Court bench after being a uh, member of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, 
where she served until her elevation in the Supreme Court. Before that, she served as a U.S. District Court judge nominated to the bench in 2012 by President Barack Obama. So, you know, she is, uh, she is married, she has two children, uh, both daughters, uh, one is in college and one's in high school. And uh, her husband, Paul Jackson, is a doctor. Her confirmation in the Senate was uh, 53 to 47 uh, back in April. Uh, she, in addition to Democrat senators voting for her, she picked up three Republican votes. Senator Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Mitt Romney of Utah. Uh, she was confirmed in April, but uh, had to wait in the wings until the end of the term, uh, which is when new justices are elevated to the bench. And uh, so she will take her seat for the first time in October when the court starts its 2022-2023 term. So, you know, we have uh, some, some very big history that occurred this past week, and we're excited to see uh, what will transpire with, you know, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson on the bench. And as I said uh, a few minutes ago, uh, I, I don't believe that there's going to be a radical you know, ground shift of positions on the Supreme Court. But I do believe that her influence and her input into the decisions will uh, will turn slowly the the processes of the court. Uh, hopefully to a a more understanding posture. Um, you know, it, it is not likely that, as I said, we'll see a groundbreaking shift in judicial philosophy. However, we are likely to see the influence of Justice Katanji Brown Jackson in some of the decisions that come from the bench uh, once the term starts in October. Uh, we're excited about the addition to the Supreme Court. We look forward to uh, watching and observing how uh, she fits in and you know, where her leadership will show in the court. And uh, we will keep you posted as to what transpires with the newest addition to the Supreme Court and first black female justice of the Supreme Court, Katanji Brown Jackson. And we wish her the best. We send our congratulations to her. And we hope that she has a long and fruitful career on the bench. So in, in keeping with our discussion of the Supreme Court, uh, another decision uh, came out from the court on uh, the 27th of June. And uh, this one as reported by Reuters, uh, where the US Supreme Court's Miranda decision uh, further guts 150-year-old civil rights law. And for those of you that, that may not be familiar, uh, the Miranda decision was the decision uh, based on a case where a uh, person who was arrested uh, did not receive uh, fair treatment because they did not understand or were not explained their rights. As a result of the decision, the now famous, you have the right to remain silent, you know, texts that uh, law enforcement officers uh, had been required to provide to people they were placing under arrest 
transforming uh, a Reconstruction era, era law meant to protect the rights of freed slaves and marginalized Americans into a formidable shield for the most powerful, including police, prosecutors, and businesses. Uh, the decision bars lawsuits against police for using evidence obtained without advising people of their rights. The Miranda warnings the court main mandated nearly 60 years ago have since become the framework through which most Americans understand their rights against police intrusion. Uh, the ruling was 6-3 uh, on the, the case of Vega versus Tekoa, which was uh, expectedly split among partisan lines, nullified essentially the only direct remedy available in those situations. Uh, and the article points out that police officers are notorious for invading internal discipline and legal consequence, even for con conduct that constitutes a crime, like assaulting someone to compel a false confession. Uh, as the uh, decision came down, uh, Justice Elena Kagan noted in the dissent that the court's ruling still allows a victim in a similar situation to suppress the improperly obtained evidence at trial. But sometimes, and this is a quote, such a statement will not be suppressed, and sometimes as a result a defendant will be wrongly prosecuted, convicted, and spend years in prison without any redress. Uh, in fact, that was uh, the, the basis for the case that brought this before the Supreme Court in the first place. Terrence Tico, uh, who was a nurse assistant, alleged that Los Angeles Sheriff's Deputy Carlos Vega didn't Mirandize him and strong-armed him into confessing to sexual assault, including threatening Tico's family with deportation. The state tried to convict him twice, but Tico was never been found guilty. Uh, he was found not guilty despite a supposed witness identification and a supposed uh, confession, uh, and that was uh, from a California attorney, John Burton. Still, the, the Supreme Court's decision leaves Teco without a meaningful remedy for the costly and traumatic uh, ordeal. The court held that a, a violation of Miranda rules which protect the constitutional right against compelled self-incrimination isn't a violation of the Constitution itself. Police, therefore, can't be sued under the civil rights law Taco relied on because that statute allows suits when officials violate rights secured by the Constitution, just as Samuel Alito wrote. The conservatives' analysis turned on an artificial distinction between so-called prophylactic rules and, if you will, true constitutional rules. According to the court, prophylactic rules protect constitutional rights, but they extend beyond the core guarantee of the Constitution's language. One can therefore violate these rules without actually violating the Constitution, the court con concluded. So what does all this legalese mean? Well, the ruling signals to law enforcement that procedures meant to safeguard individual rights during police interactions are, practically speaking, optional. It's virtually impossible that an apartment would discipline an officer for the omission or that a prosecutor would take legal action. And now there's no civil legal recourse available either. So, you know, what does this mean in, in general terms? 
it means that uh, basically there is no uh, formal requirement for you to be read your rights as defined in the Miranda statute uh, any further. So what what does that mean you should do if you are interacting with police? Well, I've read a couple of um, articles and opinions and and some things that I have I've heard talked about uh, on broadcast media. And uh, according to the lawyers that I've read and, you know, that I've heard and, you know, caveat full, I'm not an attorney and I'm not providing legal advice. I'm just telling you what I have read and I have seen and I have heard. Basically, uh, the majority of these attorneys and by majority, I mean just about all of them said essentially the same thing. If you are in an interaction with law enforcement officers, uh, you can identify yourself and then you should uh, shut up and request a lawyer and not say another word. All right. So that you can make sure that your rights are being protected uh, by someone trained in the law uh, who will look out for your interests. Uh, so, you know, here we have, you know, a another example on top of the decision that came out regarding, you know, abortion and Roe v. Wade, uh, here we have a um, drastic uh, undercutting of, you know, personal protections against uh, forced self-incrimination. And, you know, that's just a, another step in the so-called conservative agenda as to what's going to become of our uh, basic rights here in the United States of America. So a as we've seen, uh, the protections uh, against um, or, or making the abortion uh, broadly legal in this country have been you know, turned off. The protections uh, of permitting in, in citizens uh, carrying weapons uh, that has been shut off so that, you know, the the end result there in, in the decision in the New York case is that anyone can purchase a handgun. There is, you know, no essential permitting that is being done or, or enforced at the federal level. Uh, and, you know, it, it just says that, you know, guns are going to continue to proliferate uh, in our society. And now we have the weakening of the Miranda laws or the Miranda statute that uh, seeks to ensure protections uh, for citizens against, as I said, uh, forced self-incrimination. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it looks like there's no end to the erosion of personal rights and freedoms uh, that were uh, not codified in the Constitution, but were guaranteed under uh, legal decisions and precedents set from the Supreme Court. So, you know, the, the upshot is uh, we have to really, really uh, pay attention, keep track of all of these, these types of laws, because there are more that the Supreme Court has signaled that they are going to look at including same-sex marriage, including uh, contraception, which is another uh, item on the table for consideration by the Supreme Court, 
uh, you know, and and many more, which, you know, as as I said, were not codified into the Constitution uh, by act of Congress, but rather were laws that were set in place under the authority of the Constitution uh, that uh, were were guaranteed or believed to be guaranteed by the 14th Amendment uh, under the constitutional rights to privacy. So we have a you know, situation here in this country where it appears that uh, the, the conservative slash right wing of our political system is hell-bent for leather to you know, not only uh, strip women of their reproductive rights and other rights as citizens, but these laws that they are looking at you know, amending, uh, eliminating, uh, will impact uh, people of color in this country, will impact voting in this country, will impact immigration in this country, uh, all in, in the name of, you know, securing our, quote, liberties, close quote. And if you can tell me how restricting uh, the rights of citizens to certain things is securing their liberty, uh, I would gladly like to hear that explanation. Uh, if, if you have an explanation for that, uh, send it to the show. Uh, our email address is firedupradio at yahoo.com. If you have a logical explanation for how the elimination of access to contraception uh, same same sex marriage and and others in those right to privacy issues uh, that were you know supposedly shielded under the 14th amendment uh, how those uh, being eliminated uh, strengthens and secures our liberties uh, I definitely want to hear your thoughts so please send an email to the show the address again is firedupradio at yahoo.com and you know I would love to read your emails into the podcast and you know have a discussion and and really dig into what that all means and where do we go from here and and perhaps to give you a, a little bit of context in you know assessing what the the supreme court uh has you know influence uh bear in mind that there have been a lot of calls in the media and from some political leaders that the the court needs to be expanded uh you know and to at least 13 judges from its current level of nine which is something that you know congress could do you know provided you know they have the votes to do it uh right now there are 13 uh circuits in the united states and uh, what typically happens is each of the justices of the Supreme Court uh, has an assigned uh, circuit that you know they respond to, or they are in they are the point of contact for when cases get elevated. Well, obviously, with nine justices and thirteen uh, circuits, some of the justices uh, actually have more than one circuit that you know they react to or that they are associated with. So the idea of appointing uh, additional judges to get it to a one-to-one -one relationship uh, has some logic and some merit to it. Uh, 
you know, but keep in mind that uh, such an expansion of the court could only stay in effect as long as the uh, the party in power uh, is around to enforce it. What I mean is that uh, the the Republicans, if they take power, could just as easily uh, pass a law that would reduce the number of justices uh, back to nine or to any other number they would choose as long as it's an odd number so there are no ties. Uh, but you know, bear in mind that since justices are appointed for a life term, uh, any such change would take a long time to take effect. That is, uh, as justices retire from the bench or uh, step down or, you know, uh, deceased or pa pass away, uh, their seat would not be filled until the, the court would revert back to its nine justice uh, complement. Uh, but, you know, that that is, you know, something for discussion. There are pros and cons. Uh, I will dig into it in detail, uh, do the homework and get some facts, and we will discuss the potential of expanding the court uh, in a future podcast coming up. So stay tuned for that, and we will keep you informed uh, with all the goings-on of the Supreme Court. All right, let's um, take a break here, uh, bring you some you know information from WJMS Media, and then we'll come back on the backside and talk about a couple of more uh, issues that came across my desk this week that I want to bring to your attention. You're listening to the Fired Up Podcast. I appreciate your, uh, your listening and sticking with us. We'll be right back after this break. Responsible gun owners want responsible gun ownership laws. You know who else does? Responsible parents, sisters, brothers, and friends. Responsible bosses, employees, teachers, and students. Cat people, dog people, horse people, and even responsible fish people. Simply put, responsible Americans want responsible gun ownership laws. Learn more about States United to Prevent Gun Violence at SUPGV.org. Welcome back. Thank you for listening to that message from your friends here at WJMS Media and here at the Fired Up Podcast. All right, so continuing along, uh, one of the other big things that occurred this past week was the sixth hearing of the House Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. And uh, this latest hearing, which came as a surprise because uh, the popular belief was that the committee was not going to hold any other meetings in June, but uh, apparently uh, as a result of the, the uh, evidence and information that the committee has been receiving since the start of the hearings, uh, they felt that uh, this additional session was necessary, and in fact, they're indicating that the next uh, hearings uh, continuing will be in July. Uh, so let's take a quick minute and kind of recap some of the highlights of what we've had uh, in the January 6th committee hearings. Uh, and again, this is going to be kind of a lightning round with, you know, really just kind of the top level information. So on the first day of the hearing, uh, the, on June the 9th, uh, the committee got a description of a sprawling multi-step conspiracy to stop the peaceful transfer of power. Uh, that was spearheaded by former President Trump. Uh, they laid out a seven-point plan 
uh, as to how the the uh, usurping of the election results was going to transpire with individual steps and then backups in case that step did not succeed. Uh, on day two, which was held on June 13th, uh, Trump aides and former Attorney General Bill Barr gave explosive testimony uh, describing how they advised Trump not to declare victory on election night and how he ignored evidence that he lost the election. As you may recall, the videotape testimony of Attorney General Bill Barr was where he let uh, the committee know and, and us as well that he advised the president that the uh, idea and the, that the election was uh, fraudulently competed, completed was, in his words, bullshit. Uh, so the fourth day of the hearings um, where now they began focusing on some of the actions that were occurring in the states, uh, state officials in Georgia and Arizona told the January 6th committee during that Tuesday's hearing that they received threats after they refused to abide by Donald Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election results. And of course, we heard uh, commentary and, and recorded comments from the former president uh, in talking to the, uh, the uh, Mr. Raffensperger in Georgia where he was asking for 11,600 some odd votes uh, to be, quote, found, close quote, uh, which was what he needed to overturn the results in Georgia and perhaps serve as the first domino to fall in declaring the electoral count uh, invalid on January 6th. Uh, the fifth day of the hearing, former Justice Department officials told the committee about the pressure Trump put on them to investigate baseless claims of election fraud and his ultimately failed plan to install an attorney general who was sympathetic to the conspiracy. And we covered this in the last episode of our podcast uh, where the gentleman that President Trump wanted to appoint as the head of the Department of Justice with some 36 days left in his term uh, was declared by the acting attorney general at the time to be, quote, incompetent uh, as he had never tried a criminal case uh, he was actually a, uh, a um, agriculture uh, lawyer or, or some such and was, was wholly unqualified to head up the hundreds of thousands of individuals that make up the Department of Justice for the United States. And then we came to the sixth uh, day of testimony, which was uh, arguably the most explosive because this is where uh, former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson portrayed Donald Trump as reckless and unhinged, describing how he knew participants at his January 6th rally were armed, but warned, but wanted them rather to march on the Capitol anyway, and he wanted to join them. Hus Hutchinson also revealed White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows asked for a pardon after the Capitol riot along with Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani. And again, as covered in uh, our, our last podcast, uh, a total of six uh, Congress people and officials uh, requested pardons uh, from the president before he left office. 
He also, I'm, I'm sorry, she also recounted a conversation with the chief of Trump's security detail. She said one uh, Secret Service agent was physically attacked by Trump for refusing to drive him to the Capitol while the mob was bearing down on it. So, you know, it, it, it has been a, a series of explosive revelations about the, the depth and, and schemes that uh, former President Trump and his close associates were undertaking to overturn the election results on January 6th. So what we learned uh, in the sixth hearing, which was by all accounts the most explosive you know, of the hearings that we had heard, um, and we had heard some pretty um, some pretty uh, damning evidence, uh, including things like uh, the uh, Proud Boys and Oath Keepers stashing weapons in their hotel rooms so that they would be ready to be armed on the day of the insurrection. Uh, the, the intent of the Proud Boys, if they had found Vice President Mike Pence or Speaker Nancy Pelosi to, in, in their words, kill them or take them out. Uh, you know, and of course, we all saw the image of the hangman's noose that was erected in the front lawn of the Capitol building. But the testimony that uh, Cass- Cassidy Hutchinson gave, which many in the Trump circles have been desperately uh, trying to communicate uh, and, and discredit uh, the testimony from Ms. Hutchinson, uh, point, pointed and painted a picture of the former president as you know being more and more irate uh, with the results of what was going on on the 6th Uh, in in one scenario that she relayed she talked about how after uh, Trump's speech at the ellipse uh, where he called on the crowd to march down to the Capitol and that he would be with them when he got into the um, the SUV limo that he was riding in uh, he instructed the driver and the, the Secret Service agent in the vehicle to take him to the Capitol. Uh, the agents refused to do that, citing the danger that was present. And as we learned in earlier testimony in the hearings, uh, that the request had been made to uh, D.C. police and was denied because they were unable to provide the proper proper security logistics for some such a trip by the president of the United States. Uh, but that being said, when he was told that they were not going to drive them, drive him to the Capitol, uh, I guess the president became you know, very irate. And according to um, testimony from Ms. Hutchinson that she heard from the Secret Service agents on the detail, the president uh, lunged for the steering wheel of the limo and uh, was required to be uh, you know, somewhat restrained by the, the agents in the vehicle uh, as they took him back to the West Wing. Uh, he, she also provided testimony that talked about uh, the former president's reaction uh, to the uh, statements uh, made by Attorney Barr, uh, where he was sitting in the uh, the White House cafeteria, the Oval Office uh, lunchroom, watching the testimony on TV, 
uh, got so irate that he threw his lunch at the wall, shattering the plate and you know spilling ketchup down the wall of the uh, cafeteria in the White House. Um, you know, and the the information that she provided was very clear, calmly presented. Uh, she stated uh, the the facts as she knew them, uh, and uh, you know the conversations that she were that she was a part of, um, you know, and just painted the picture of what was going on inside the White House with President Trump that day. For example, uh, she talked about uh, what White House counsel Pat Cipollone warned against letting Trump travel to the Capitol that day prior to the speech in stark terms. Uh, if Trump did so, according to Pat Cipollone, his, uh, his White House counsel said, we are going to get charged with every crime imaginable from obstruction to fraud. Um, you know, and the, you know, Ms. Hutchinson portrayed uh, Trump as spiraling into an increasingly manic rage as he continued his last-ditch effort to seize a second term he didn't win. Um, she offered some of the gravest evidence yet of Trump's awareness of the violent elements within his base that were ultimately at least against the Congress. Uh, for example, he was informed that uh, there were people who were uh, gathering you know, at, at the ellipse just prior to when the speeches were to be given who actually were there with um, automatic weapons, with handguns, with bear spray. They were wearing body armor. Uh, and Trump's response was uh, that it didn't matter. And, you know, where Secret Service was barring them from entering the crowd area, uh, Trump got very upset because it was diminishing the size of the crowd that would witness his speech. And, of course, he wanted the photo, uh, the optics of it to show a, you know, a huge crowd listening to him, being the leader, and so forth. Uh, and he was uh, heard to tell uh, Secret Service details uh, in proximity to him to take the magnetometers down and let his people in. They're not here to hurt me. And, and that was quoted uh, by Ms. Hutchinson. Uh, as as coming from the president and that she heard that so you know while many in the Trump circle are trying to dismiss her testimony as you know primarily hearsay uh, some some great portion of it was actually first person heard by her uh, in meetings with uh, the president with his aides, including Mark Meadows and, as I said, Pat Cipollone. Uh, so, you know, she was bringing the facts uh, to to the committee hearing. Uh, it it has really turned into a a firestorm of back and forth uh, controversy uh, with Ms. Hutchinson standing by her remarks, um, you know, and. You know, just all of the events that she recalled that painted the picture of the, the desperation of efforts that were underway between, you know, former president and his closest advisors. Uh, one of the things that she recalled in testimony 
was how when she mentioned uh, to Mark Meadows, uh, President's Chief of Staff, uh, about the escalating violence and the details and the, the armed people uh, that uh, Mr. Meadows you know, didn't look up from his phone, but just said, you know, things might get real, real bad. Cut, and this was on January 2nd, which was fully four days before the actual insurrection. So, you know, it, it was, as she said, the first moment that I remember feeling scared and nervous of what could happen on January 6th. And I had a deeper concern for what was happening with the planning aspects of it, she recalled. All in all, the testimony of this aide uh, to the president's staff who had access to all of the key uh, players at the time and so forth painted a, uh, a detailed picture of just the level of uh, tension and you know, desperation that we're showing uh, in, in the president and his staff as the days leading to January 6th got closer and closer and they were starting to get inclinations that former Vice President Mike Pence was not going to, uh, to do what they were asking him to do and so forth. So you know, we will wait uh, for the next set of hearings to take place um, and I will keep tabs on them and let you know what transpires. Uh, but if it's anything like you know, what we have seen so far, uh, it should be a wild ride. And I encourage everybody to you know, listen as they can to get the information and the facts firsthand uh, and you know, probably not, not giving them a plug because they don't pay me. But I would say... Uh, if you want to get an unvarnished readout of the events, uh, check out C-SPAN. Uh, they give you gavel-to-gavel uh, -gavel coverage of the hearings, and it is not interrupted with you know, any uh, political positioning by pundits or others, you know, either on the right or on the left. So we'll keep you posted. We'll keep you up to date. Uh, but I can't wait for the next hearing. I don't know about you, but I definitely am, you know, being a, a political junkie as I am, uh, I can't wait to hear what else is going to come down out of these, these hearings. All right, we're going to move from that to uh, a very disturbing uh, story that came across uh, the radar and, and has been making the rounds through media uh, since uh, the, it was first uh, brought up uh, late Friday and into Saturday morning. And it, it's related, uh, again, back to what we've been saying about the Supreme Court. But, and, and again, this is you know, something that I find deeply disturbing. Uh, this comes out of you know, an Ohio newspaper that talks about a 10-year-old girl was denied abortion services in Ohio. And, you know, it, it reads, a 10-year-old girl was denied an abortion in Ohio after the Supreme Court ruled last week, uh, and this, by the way, came out on July 2nd, 
that it was overturning Roe versus Wade, demonstrating the tangible impacts that the high court's decision is having on patients seeing, seeking access to the medical procedure. Uh, the, the, the story of this is a child abuse doctor in Ohio uh, contacted another doctor, an obstetrician gynecologist in Indiana, after receiving a 10-year-old patient who was six weeks and three days pregnant, uh, and this was reported in the Indianapolis Star. Uh, that patient uh, headed west to Indiana, uh, given that an abortion ban in Ohio which prohibits medical procedures when fetal cardiac activity begins, it's around, according to them, around six weeks, had become effective quickly after the high court issued its decision. Uh, several law groups filed a lawsuit to block the state law from taking effect on Wednesday. Uh, an emergency stay of the abortion ban was rejected by the Ohio Supreme Court on Friday, meaning that the ban can be upheld as the case is reviewed, and that's reported in the Cincinnati Enquirer. Uh, so here we have, and you know, this is something that you know I, I pray does not become a trend. However, um, if if there is one, there are likely others. But you know, this, in in, in my opinion. Uh, just demonstrates the the brutality of this decision by the Supreme Court uh, and the the need for reasoned and reasonable uh, discussion and you know whatever legal adjustments can be made to account for situations like this. This is a 10 year old girl who is, at least at the time of the article, was six weeks and three days pregnant. Now, the, the ban in Indiana was for six weeks is the outer limit of when an abortion could be performed. Now, that is not available, and it, it is the intention of the, the state for this, again, 10-year-old girl to carry this pregnancy to term. Um, we have got to elevate this situation. We've got to make sure that we are uh, conveying our feelings on this to our elected officials at the state level and all the way up the chain to the federal level and you know, push and, and push hard to get some legislation in that can, you know, either codify a, uh, a a sane abortion policy, you know, if if I can use that phrase, um, or at least offer protections for those things that you know were considered a set exceptions, such you know, rape, incest, and you know, again, a ten-year-old girl being pregnant. Um, so we'll we'll keep tabs on this story. Uh, it, it it continues to develop as I'm recording this podcast. So when I get additional information, I will bring it forward. Um, and I'll I'll conclude this part with you know just one other question that I think needs to be raised and needs to be raised forcefully is what happens to 
individual that got this child pregnant in the first place. Uh, that remains to be seen. I will keep tabs and let you know what transpires. All right, and uh, the last story for this segment uh, comes across my desk from where else but the great state of Texas. The Texas Board of Education strikes down a proposal to call slavery involuntary relocation. Uh, the Board of Education in Texas had uh, issued a proposal to uh, change the terms of uh, education around slavery and essentially to, to rename slavery as involuntary relocation. Uh, and this is according to an article from The Hill. And it, it cites the proposal first reported by the Texas Tribune was introduced at the board's June 15th meeting. Throughout the summer, the board will consider several curriculum updates to comply with lawmakers' requirements to keep, to keep subjects that make students uncomfortable out of schools. Nine educators, including a professor from the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, were behind the suggested language change. Uh, according to the Tribune, reported the proposal was struck down by the board unanimously. And kudos to them for that. While involuntary relocation isn't an entirely unknown term in social studies, it often has relationships to refugees and forced displacement due to violence or ethnic cleansing. And that's a quote from Neil Shanks, clinical assistant professor of middle and secondary education at Baylor University. In this case, Shanks added, the term appeared to be intended to water down the issue of slavery. In a statement posted to Twitter, the Texas Education Agency said the board provided feedback in the meeting indicating that the working group needed to change the language related to involuntary relocation. So this, this latest uh, attack on you know, school books and, and history subjects, uh, this one in Texas comes a year after Governor Greg Abbott signed House Bill 3979 into law. That law, which went into effect last September, prohibits schools from teaching critical race theory curriculums. Critical race theory, as we've explained on this podcast many times, examines how the history of race and racism in the U.S. continues to impact systems and institutions today. These are the least independent states in the report from a social studies perspective, said Shanks, Talking about slavery as involuntary relocation obfuscates the way that slavery as a system is embedded in so many aspects of our lives. That includes the way slavery is embedded in the criminal justice system, the economic system, and even the electoral college, he said. Uh, but again, according to the article in December, yet another Texas law forbade instruction instructors from teaching slavery as the, quote, true founding, close quote, of the United States. It also advised slavery as well as racism is a, quote, deviation from the authentic founding principles of liberty and equality. Uh, hold that thought for a second. So the their contention is that 
slavery uh, is a deviation from authentic founding principles of liberty and equality. Um, as I look up the concept and the definition of slavery, I find nothing in it that speaks to uh, liber liberty and equality, uh, either in the practice or the application. Uh, but the article goes on. While many may question if slavery is an appropriate topic to discuss in elementary schools, Shanks believe if a child is young enough to be affected by, in this case, the history of slavery or the institution of slavery or the way it's embedded in our society, then they're young enough to learn about it. He added, students are adept at seeing the world around them, asking questions based on their observations. If their school curriculum is painting a picture of a world that's free of injustice, Shanks argued, students will do one of two things. They either think badly about people who are struggling and suffering because of injustice, he said, or they reject school and the curriculum that's being taught to them as something that's not real or relevant because they can see with their eyes the ramifications of this. And, you know, I, I agree with that final assessment. Um, we live in an age of the Internet and Google and, you know, all of these tools that bring all the information in the world and all the information in this country to the fingertips of, you know, students as soon as they are old enough to be able to manipulate uh, a laptop, a tablet, or a smartphone. Um, the, the fact that we are trying to hide, what, let me rephrase that. The fact that there are groups in this country that seek to hide a truthful and factual discussion of the history of this country, which among all of the great things that happened, you know, all of the the discussion about, you know, independence and, you know, the the rejection of tyranny by, you know, the crown of England and all of these things, uh, but leaves out the the dirty laundry of things like slavery, like the indentured servitude of Europeans when they were brought to this country, and doesn't include a discussion of the fact that even though slavery uh, supposedly was outlawed in the uh, post-Civil War era, keep in mind, and we'll, I'll, I'll leave this as a thought for you to, to process. Uh, slavery was outlawed and was made unconstitutional except for one thing. Prisoners can still be enslaved. And we see the evidence of this to a great extent when we look at the prison labor industry in this country and the fact that you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of prisoners in this country are, are doing labor for some of the uh, largest, richest, most powerful corporations in this country for pennies on the dollar. So, you know, while the, the idea of, you know, an enslaved people working uh, backbreaking hours for nothing uh, was made unconstitutional,
the process of using a uh, a captive uh, group of individuals for extremely low wage labor still lives on in this country today. So we'll we'll leave that as the thought. If you have any comments or questions on this, please, as I said earlier, send an email to the show. Our email address is firedupradio at yahoo.com. I really, really would love to hear your thoughts on you know all of the topics we've talked about in this episode or any episode of our podcast. So as always, thank each and every one of you for uh, taking the time to download and listen to my podcast. I do appreciate it. Uh, I, I really relish uh, the feedback I do get. And, you know, stay safe, stay healthy, and I will be sending another podcast your way in seven days. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.